0: it's tuesday september 12th 2023 from peach fish productions it's the gist i'm mike pesca danilo cavalcante is on the loose in pennsylvania he is armed and dangerous, as CBS a little too gleefully reports. Police activity in South Coventry Township has intensified overnight. We've seen many officers wearing tactical gear and holding long rifles as they lock down the area in pursuit of Danilo Cavacante, who police say is now armed with a gun. Not armed with a gun of all things. How'd he get the gun? The Today Show reports. Police here at the command post during a press conference confirming that Cavalcante is now armed and dangerous saying he entered the home of a resident in this new search area and stole a rifle, a 22, that homeowner firing shots at Cavalcante but failed to strike the fugitive. So the Today Show, CBS Sunday Morning, this manhunt seems like an old-fashioned media sensation. You got local Philly media, you got national media, even police scanners are getting into the mix.
1: Hispanic male, roughly 30 years of age, 5 foot, currently shirtless and blue pants. Subjects known to have a cut cutoff rifle
2: with a scope and a flashlight.
0: Well, as a Brazilian, he wouldn't technically be an Hispanic. He'd be a Latino. That's truly important to note. Really, it damages the credibility of the authorities who are purveying that information, as does, you know, the whole letting the guy escape in the first place thing. Can we really trust these authorities when they say, Where police have told residents to remain inside and lock doors and windows, saying, quote, Cavalcante is armed with a weapon. I mean, it is Pennsylvania. About 40% of residents have a gun in their home, according to Rand and the Pew studies. I remember it was 2015 when Richard Matt and David Sweat Escaped from the Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York. It was made into the Ben Stiller-directed Showtime series. *Sweat Mat*. No, it was called Escape from Dannemora. Better title. And that was treated, at the time, as a bit of a good time. Sure, there was a frisson of danger, but we were, or many of us were, if not rooting for them, quite invested in their adventures. Benicio del Toro starred as... Richard Matt in the movie in which he seduced a dowdy prison guard played by Patricia Arquette. He had enough big dick energy to bust out of a prison. That is something. But this current guy, this Danilo Cavalcante guy, he's just a menace. I think the big difference in why there is no joy or glee around his escape is his choice of victim. He fatally stabbed his girlfriend in front of her two children. There is no allure or romance to that. Also, in 2015, this may factor into it. There wasn't a big abolish prison movement that you were always hearing about. I mean, I don't think in 2023, there's a big abolish prison movement, but you are always hearing about it. I haven't tuned in to the abolish prison type outlets that might be covering this story, I'd be interested to see how the escape is being treated. Danilo Cavalcante, an activist brave enough to put the no jail slogan into action, was once more mercilessly hunted down by ideologues who just won't hear him out. I joke, I joke no jails people, but seriously, and I mean this, jails, I like jails, not all the jails, not for everyone, but some jails, some of the time. That's my slogan. That's my movement. Definitely. You know what's a good place to start? Danilo Cavalcanti. In fact, it would have been more than a good place to start. It would have been a good place to start and then to competently continue on with on the show today. No spiel. It's a full show interview. We're joined by Andrew Yang, ran for mayor of this city, ran for president, and Stephen Marsh, who's been on the show a couple of times. They have combined for a new novel called The Last Election, which, spoiler alert... Isn't the last election because we get it so right, it's perfected. This is a work of fiction. It touches on many themes about journalism politics that we experience in our daily lives. And the two guests engage with me in some high quality doomsday talk. I try to talk them off the ledge. Their economic interests don't align with that. Andrew Yang and Stephen Marsh up next. unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could've taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The name of the book is The Last Election. It's about the next election, but does contain that dire prediction right there in the plot and in the title. It is written by Stephen Marsh and Andrew Yang. You might know one of them as having been a candidate for mayor of New York City and president. Stephen Marsh was actually the first guest on The Gist Season 2 with his book, The Next Civil War. A lot of those ideas are in this book. Stephen, Andrew, welcome back, each of you, to The Gist. Pleasure to be with you. It's great to be back. So, Stephen, your last book was written. It was called Death of an Author. And you were on. You talked about it. And it was written with uh, the help of computer learning. So the first question is, is it easier to write a book with AI or AY?
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, Andrew was a perfect collaborator. And we – I mean – AI is not a perfect collaborator. You're constantly having to force it to do things.
1: I have outdone <laughs> AI yet again. Yes, you have.
2: A- AI is a much better collaborator than AI, for sure. It was it was a wonderful collaboration. I enjoyed every minute of it.
0: How did it work? Give me a little bit of the breakdown of labor.
1: Oh, it was so fun. So uh, what I would do is I would do a brain dump to Steven, and then he would take notes assiduously. And then he would return with draft pages, uh, and I would say yes, yes, no, no, edit, hone, edit, hone, and then we would uh, repeat as needed until both of us were happy.
0: How many of the how many full paragraphs are from the pen of Andrew Yang?
1: Full paragraphs, not that many, honestly. Uh, like my ideas and imprint all over the place, uh, but. In a way, Stephen was uh, was my AI. <laughs> I don't look yeah. at it that way.
2: <laughs> I, I, on the other hand, I'm not sure that I could tell you which parts I wrote and which parts Andrew wrote. Like he's definitely all the way through it, and um, like you know which parts he corrected. Like obviously, I put sentences together. That's that's what I do. But I did feel like I was kind of a bell that Andrew was ringing to warn people. Right. And, you know, and also the it it was it was Andrew, but it was also like the people that he introduced me to who explained how American politics work um, and which, you know, they told me the truth and that truth is in the book. And that's kind of like to me, this book is like a political thriller built for speed, but it really contains that that insight that Andrew has into what's broken about American politics in detail in like as and and as readable a detail as we could get because that's what's really important here
0: so listeners should know the main character two main characters one's a new york times journalist who gets a tip about mm, the joint chiefs of staff planning for a coup essentially and the other main character is a political consultant who is consulting with a third party candidate Uh, People should also know that Andrew Yang is the founder of Forward, which is a new independent political movement dedicated to restoring the promise of American democracy. Not sure how that plays out. But some of the revelations about how things really work might seem cynical. But then when you give them a second pass through your brain, you're like, that probably is how things really work. Like, say, sexual scandals. The character has what could be considered a sexual scandal. But Andrew, tell me how things, quote unquote, really work when it comes to that.
1: Yeah, so uh, you can think about John Kerry and swift boating. Uh, what works is when you turn someone's strength into a weakness. What doesn't work is when you confirm what people already think about someone. So if, if I had, hey, Donald Trump was an asshole this one time, people would be like shrug, um, because that's consistent. But if you say Ellen DeGeneres was an asshole this one time, then all of a sudden, or Lizzo or, or whomever. Or Lizzo then fat it's a, shamed people. That's exactly 180 from what we thought. Yeah. That, then it's a problem. So uh, often people mistake what could hurt one candidate for what would hurt another when it's actually very candidate specific.
0: But do you really think some of the uh, the main character in the book went to sex parties in Detroit? But uh, do you really think that a candidate could skate through that in America, as you know, still puritanical as America is in 2023?
1: Uh, I think if their vibe was of a swinger who was breaking the rules, uh, yeah, especially if they were running in this third lane of independent politics, um, because you would forego some of the more traditionally conservative. Voters. Mm hmm.
0: Was this a, this made sense to you, Stephen, or was a
2: revelation? It made perfect or, yeah. sense to me. Yeah. I mean, once it's explained to you, it's like, right, of course that's how it works. Right. Like, 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 it's like, yeah, that's, and, you know, the, the fact that it like, gets, it's not just Andrew telling me this, it's like his stuff, Zach, like his, like, and all these guys who are telling me exactly the same thing. And it's like, after a while, you're like, oh, yeah, this is how it works. Like, and of course, Donald Trump is the ultimate example of that. Right. It's like it, you know, what would have sunk any other candidate just didn't make any difference because it doesn't work exactly the way that Andrew just explained it.
0: Yeah. So then there's the element of how the media works. Now, you both have insight, but from different directions. Stephen, you've been in the media and in um, news for decades. And Andrew, you have been the subject of news. So who informed the other one about truths and realities of the media?
1: Uh, well, the media is a big subject on my last book forward. Um, and I was on air. Uh, I've been, I mean, so I've been a part of the media too. Uh, I was a contributor for CNN for uh, a little while and have now made probably dozens or hundreds of appearances. So I've been both the subject and, uh, on the, uh, on the commentator side. Um, and uh, our media now, um, does have something of an asymmetrical relationship with different types of Americans. Uh, 69% of Democrats have a high trust in the media, including you, Mike, everyone loves you and trusts you. Uh, <laughs> if you go to the Republican side of the aisle, it's 15%. It's one reason why someone like Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis can run against the news media and just lambaste everyone as fake news and in the tank and, and whatsoever. And then their voters are like Yeah, yeah. Um, And then on the the flip side, Democrats do want permission from various media organizations to vote for someone. So uh, we tried to paint that picture while also depicting the mechanics of what happens inside various publications.
2: Yeah. I mean, I just felt like Andrew was kind of giving me the real thing on how politicians work, like without... Fear, like he was, he was revealing secrets. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like to counter that or to, to compliment it, I would sort of need to give a, an accurate portrait of how the media actually worked with, you know, because these are my people. I love them. These, like the characters in, in this book are exactly the kind of people that I spent my life around and whom I love. But, you know, it's an analysis of how systems lead to bad decisions, which have consequences, right? And that we all know that that happens in the media, just as it happens in policy, and it happens in every other aspect. And so, to me, the the, the narratives they sort of they needed to fit together that way. And so, it's like you know, it's a very accurate depiction of like a a, a, a um, tip line. Like, how yeah. does a tip line work? Like, how does a, like you know the 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 a paper receives hundreds of upon hundreds of bits of information every morning? Like, how does it sift through them and decide what's news? Like, th- I wanted a very accurate and and frank portrait of that um, to complement, you know, the frank portrait of, pol- uh, of political life. Which, that seemed to me only fair.
0: Yeah, so there's a lot in the book about the media from... Um from YouTubers all the way up to the New York times, but much of it yeah. takes place as a discussion of the New York times, really blowing a huge story, dragging its feet on yeah. this chatter about a coup. And mainly because the main editor seems uninterested in pursuing the story sufficiently. He seems a little scared of the story. It has to be yeah. nailed down eight ways to Sunday. And this story gets quashed. Do you really think, so what I think is that there is a lot, there is certainly with many stories and, uh, an excess of caution, but with other stories. And this goes in with what you were saying about the narratives around candidates with certain candidates or with certain ideas. I think the media will pursue it rather aggressively. So why in your book is this story about a coup, the sort of thing that you think the New York times would be too scared of to publish?
1: I, I think at the end of the day, a lot of these, um, a lot of the judgment that institutions are making is either pro or anti-institution. And uh, right now, the the clash that's going on in American life is you have the Republicans who are tear it down, blow it up. And then you have the Democrats who become kind of the defenders of the institutions. And so anything that would call into question, uh, possibly one of the last trusted institutions in American life, according to polls, um, to be the military, uh, w- would be a massive, massive decision. Uh, and, uh, you can easily see them, uh, vacillating.
2: Yeah. That's totally accurate. And I mean, you've been in these situations before where good, you know, good journalist like these stories are very hard to process in real time. Right. And people, institutions make bad choices about them all the time. And uh, and I think, you know, the the portrait in the book is, you know, obviously it's a case, but it's I, I don't think it's would you I mean, you've been involved in some of these things from the inside. Would you find that particularly unbelievable that handling? I mean, I wouldn't. Um,
0: I think with that, well, first of all, the question isn't would that really happen? The question is, does it plausibly enough serve the purpose of the book? It definitely works as uh, that centerpiece of a work of fiction. That is that is correct. And also, it's not like one of those things to buy into it. You have to buy into a huge conspiracy that the media is actively trying to foist lies upon us. In fact, here, I'll read a I'll read to my listeners a part of the book, the main The second main character, Martha, is talking to her mentor, Ross, and they've just had a big New York Times meeting where they, New York Times decided they're going to have now a truth based approach. And she asks him, weren't we truth based before? No, Ross says not at all. What were we then based on lies? We were fact based. We brought facts to people and let them generate their own truths. So this is a big deal. It is a big deal. They're picking a side. They've decided that in a state of post truth, they don't can't just leave it up to people anymore. They have to pick a side without picking a side. It's not their fault that the truth has become inseparable from who is speaking it. I think that rings, if not factual, true to me. Right Now that guy, Ross, the mentor is, uh, described as he, he attended a time sponsored tour of a South American company with some rich kids. And he used a quote that contained the N-word, and he was uh, pretty much drummed out of the business. And then Martha was half-cancelled by association. Do you think that's realistic, that someone could just be cancelled by association with someone who would do that?
2: Yeah, totally. Yes. It ha- it, I mean, it, ha- it happened. Like, I've, I saw it happen. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I think in this case, like, the association wasn't she knew her him, but that she... Uh, said something that was like halfway, um, Defending. in defense of him. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think we've all actually seen, um, very, I mean, I I've seen it in academic circles. I'm sure it happens in journalistic circles.
2: Yeah.
0: And we will be back in but a moment to continue with Andrew Yang and Stephen Marsh on their book, the last election. So we're back with Stephen Marsh and Andrew Yang talking about their book, The Last Election. Stephen's been on the show to talk specifically about the next civil war, which you see how it dovetails with the last election. He believes and is very worried about an outbreak of political violence in the United States. But Andrew Yang, I mean, I listen to his podcast. I know his public demeanor and he is not sanguine. He doesn't think that there are no problems. He certainly articulates problems, but he at least has an affect and a demeanor, which is Pretty stunning. It scans as optimistic. So I start by asking him point blank, do you think the United States is on the brink of a civil war?
1: Uh, I think that it is a matter of time before many of the scenes depicted in this novel come to pass. And if you think about it, um there have been any number of unthinkable scenes in American life over the last several years, things that would have been unthinkable in that way back year of twenty nineteen. Now happen on the regular. Uh, all you have to do is click open your phone or take a look. And so we've acclimated to our new reality. And unfortunately, our reality is going to continue to degrade in various ways. Now, the time frame, unclear. I mean, like, did we, in my mind, did we compress a time frame for the purpose of this novel? Yes. Um, but if you extend the time frame to let's say 12 years i think most everything that's depicted in the novel is eminently realistic unfortunately
0: for us all what is the what is the chance that it, it will happen give a range of chances that we're going to see mass gunfights on the street in the names in the name of po- politics that we're going to see uh in your book th- n- our Supreme Court justice is assassinated. They don't want to give too much away, but let's say a Liz Cheney-esque figure is assassinated. So lots of political assassinations, lots of mass chaos, uh, just scores of violence as opposed to, you know, what the ADL chronicles is 50 acts of right-wing violence over the last seven years. So how likely do you think that's going to happen in 10 years, Andrew?
1: Uh, so there was literally a, like a, something of a foiled assassination attempt on a Supreme Court justice because the assassin called himself in. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you imagine a 2024 scenario, let's call it Donald Trump, uh, loses but says he won, uh, do we really think his supporters would be like, oh, well, we lost another one? I mean, at this point, his freedom could be reliant upon making the case that he won. Uh, and so the odds of there being violence in various state capitals around the country seems to me to be very high in the distant year of 2024. <laughs> so so if, if you ask me, hey, like, what do, what do I think the odds of this happening over the next 12 years or versions of it? I, I think uh, it's like very much in the mid, mid, uh, you know, 50 percent range.
2: Some of it's already happened. I mean, you know, when people like, you know, you say, like, when will there be mass like there already are mass shootings with political causes, right? Like that's, that's not something you need to predict. That's absolutely there. And, you know, the, the, the lives of justices are definitely in in jeopardy. I mean, that's just, that's not a, that's not a prediction or that's not something in a novel. That's something that is in the newspaper.
1: Yeah. The, the, there was a, a judge in New Jersey who um, had a gunman show up to her house and, she was not home, but her son unfortunately was, and the gunman killed her son. And then now that judge is fighting for a law saying that judges and law enforcement officials' information should not be publicly available, which I'm happy to say the New Jersey legislature passed, and now other states are considering it. So, um, you know, things like this are happening. Um, It's quite possible that we just don't hear a whole lot about it because it's not healthy for us to know or focus on some of the things that are happening. Well,
0: we don't hear about assassinations. I mean, I think we do hear a lot about crime. And, you know, from my perspective, if crime has a if violence has a political leaning, it will get reported, probably not even lay a crutch.
1: It'll get reported. But 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 what's not happening, Mike, is no one's looking at it and saying, OK, hey, you know, Nancy Pelosi's husband uh, violently attacked in his home. Uh, Supreme Court justice, um, like uh, their life is threatened by someone who travels across the country with, with a gun. And then you know what doesn't happen? We don't look at this and say, okay, it's only a matter of time before some of these attacks are lethal and successful. So what is required is a wholesale institutional like shift in American life where we're going to try and figure out why there's a mental health epidemic, why there's a, a an opiate ep- ep- epidemic, and get into brass tacks. You know what happens in real life, Mike? The public's attention turns to something else 24 hours later. There's a new disaster. There's a wildfire. There's a this, yeah. there's a that. And so there's like yeah. a drumbeat that just keeps on building. And we're just lurching into it like Um, Like we're expecting it to turn itself around. And this is one of the reasons why I am frustrated with the media is that, look, there are folks like Steven uh, or or Peter Turchin or other people who are making a case being like, hey, guys, we're in a descent. We're in a descent. Like the roller coaster is heading down. What are we actually going to do about it? And in some ways, I don't blame the media, because the media is now under their own crazy economic pressures. They've shed 30,000 journalist jobs. Journalists are running scared for their jobs. We've decimated over 2,000 local papers. Most communities have no idea what's going on in their midst. So we're in this era of institutional decline. And we have to figure out what the heck we're going to do about it in real life, instead of just acclimate ourselves to a reality that's going to degrade and degrade and degrade.
0: Yeah, my analysis is that we are a country of great violence and great gun violence and political violence remains a extremely small part of that. I'm not I'm not blase. I'm not sanguine. Uh, We definitely have to keep an eye on it. But I see as much evidence of exaggerating the threat of a civil war as I do downplaying actual acts of political violence. I mean. There was the guy who tried to shoot up FBI headquarters in Cincinnati, was entirely unsuccessful at it and got killed by the FBI. And this was portrayed as, oh, another example of political violence. To me, it's an example of insanity. And the only one who actually got killed was the gunman.
1: And there are hundreds of examples like that. No, no my, my, That is a perfect example, Mike, a perfect yeah. example. So let's take the Unabomber, mm-hmm. clearly insane. Um, you know, sends people bombs and, and they die. But I'm going to say to the to, you know, like to the person who's the victim of violence, there's a very, very thin distinction between, hey, the assailant was insane and the hey, the assailant was yeah, political. But to the, I the mean, hundreds like, you're, of mean, you're, of- you're going to have these two things overlap completely where there are there are a lot of crazy people in America who are going down Internet rabbit holes who are imbibing these conspiracy theories and are going to come back and then do something terrible and regrettable. And then you can write them off as being like, that's not political, that's insane. Or you could say that politics and insanity are merging before our eyes. Well, politics is becoming so dominant
0: in America that unwell people uh, affix to it because it's just so much in the ether. So there was a time when, I don't know, my brain is controlled by gamma rays used to be the explanation. Now it's my brain is controlled by what I've been seeing on 24 hour uh, news networks and the internet. I think it's bad, I think that our gigantic problem is that gun violence is uniquely bad for us as a first world country, and then a small subset of that, but growing, is this political violence. I do worry about it, but I worry
2: about it all. But Mike, I mean, don't you worry about the fact, like, the shocking number to me is that one third of Americans of both parties think that political violence is acceptable if their side loses, and that it might come to that. And that number keeps growing. Like, you know, I think there was something that really happened in 2008 where like the crazies used to be on the outside. They've moved in like they're they're, you know, Andrew's right. Like, they, like this is not a, you know, moonbeams are coming into their brains kind of group anymore. This is a sizable group of people who are tolerant of violence.
0: Yeah. So I interviewed Brendan Nyan. He was actually the second interview on season two of The Gist. And we looked at that statistic about political violence. And it was, I think, widely misreported and misstated. And if you really push on it, most people are unbelievably appalled. I'd also uh, recommend you read Adrian LaFrance wrote a very good piece cover story in The Atlantic. And it was maybe more on your side than mine, but she put it in the context of how much political violence has there always been in the United States. And, you know, compared to decades when we were even
1: alive, there's less political violence. Oh, oh, no. And, And that would be a fine comparison, Mike, comparing us to us in another era. So you could look at it and be like, you know, like a Liz Cheney type being assassinated, like crazy. But then you rewind. I mean, who's running for president right now? RFK Jr., whose dad was assassinated right after his uncle, right after Martin Luther King. There's like a whole series. Now, so uh, you can regard that as an unusually tumultuous time in American history. And then you could say, you know what? We're probably going back to a version of that. So what I, Andrew square for me,
0: I, it can be done the inherent optimism in the name and message of the forward party and not just the party and the branding. I think that people think of you as having solutions and an optimistic message, but everything that we've been talking about and reading in the book, is it, uh, you could be optimistic, but for, is that, is there more of an asterisk there than the simple F W D logo on your shirt is
1: saying? I'm so glad you're asking this, Mike, because when I was running for president in Iowa, New Hampshire, you know what I was talking about? Yes. AI and automation, uh, not in an uplifting way. <laughs> I, mean, I would say, look, 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 guys, this stuff's happening and it's coming for your retail jobs and uh, eventually truck driving jobs or, or what have you. Um, but I did it in a way that somehow left people feeling kind of optimistic, maybe because I'm uh, like a positive person human being. And I'm like out to try and get things done. Um, So I championed universal basic income and most people uh, remember that and that struck me as a very positive solution. Right now I'm championing ranked choice voting and a more sensible political system that's more dynamic and responsive and can shift uh, and accommodate new points of view. And I think if we have our current two party system that might result in a Biden Trump rematch in 2024 that most americans are not looking forward to um we're going to end up careening into something very very dark and dismal so does this book um go heavy on the um the suspense and negative and it doesn't have like a treatise at the end about rank choice voting yeah that's true
0: (laughs) that's not going to be our deliverance Um, (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: um but, you know, a- am I in real life uh, working feverishly to make ranked choice voting uh, and getting rid of party primaries, the law of the land in places like Nevada and Arizona? Yes, I am. So, you know, you, you can say, look, but the, the reason I'm working this hard is not because I think everything is going to be awesome. You know, like I, I, I'm working this hard because I think it's not going to be very awesome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. What do you think? I'll ask each of you. Um, you've written book uh, both of you have written nonfiction books. Stephen, you've also written novels. Do you think that the, this, this could have been um, a fun exercise, perhaps a remunerative exercise, an intellectually stimulating exercise? But in terms of advancing a message, is there something about a novel that can do the job better than actually expressing it in a speech essay or some other nonfiction form? And do you hope this novel does that? Stephen, you can start
2: first. Well, I think the advantage of a novel is that you see how human beings are are doing things, right? Like it, it's it takes the human point of view, whereas American politics, of course, is in this dehumanization spiral where we just see them, we just see politicians and the press as like, at best, functionaries that we despise, right? And so I think what I what we also wanted to capture and what I mean I think was very courageous adventure really to try and capture, is that in this system, the best people, the heroes still have to do things that lead to bad outcomes. right? And their choices are between good are not between good and bad, but between really bad choices and worse choices. And that's how they, and that is sort of that the novel allows a particular portrait of the system with that in it, with that human element in it. And I think that's that, that to me is why um, it works also just because I think, a thriller is a much funner thing to read than another polemic about how screwed up the American political system is. Mm -hmm. So I I think it's partly pleasure, but it's also to see it from the point of view of human beings making decisions is actually kind of a a breath of fresh air against the dehumanization of politics that we, that we tend to live
1: in. Yeah. The the way Steven knows journalists, like I know uh, political operatives uh, and They're there and they're trying to compete and do their thing. Uh, You know, sometimes they believe more than others. (laughs) Um, But uh, I I personally love this medium as a way to try and uh, entertain people, but also get a particular message out. And I've tried uh, presidential campaign, three nonfiction books, uh, endless numbers of social media videos podcast interviews now a novel uh, some people are interested in making it into a movie so uh, you know um, you I see myself as someone who's um, just trying to be a like an effective messenger and you want to reach people who hate politics but might pick up a thriller. <laughs>
0: Andrew Yang, Stephen Marsh are the co-authors of A New Novel, The Last Election. Thank you both so very much. Pleasure. Thanks, Mike. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca, is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Gperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening.